So we're sitting down with the innovators, middle managers to CEOs who are on the front lines of digital transformation to see how they did it and what they learned. That's the important thing with change, right? Is that whether you're making change or adjusting to change, it's really about focusing on the people. So join us as we uncover gritty perspectives on turnaround jobs, prioritization, road mapping, user behavior insights, and scaling organizations. Our guest today is Alexander Osterwalder. You may know him if you've heard of the business model canvas or value proposition design. Today, we're gonna to talk about his new book, The Invincible Company. You'll hear a practical approach to how to invent the future by trusting the process. And we get into the utility of failure. So let's dive in. So our guest today is Alexander Osterwalder. He's the author of many books and ones I'm sure you've seen around business model generation, value proposition design. And we're here to talk to him about our theme of looking at your business and your portfolio of products, which is really convenient because he has a new book coming out about the invincible company. And so we're really happy to have you today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. The theme we're on at the moment is around understanding your uh, your business or your portfolio products and trying to make decisions about where do you invest, where do you hold back, and how to think about that more collectively. Because we see a lot of people who are are struggling to try and figure out figure out those investments. So, how do you approach that? Well, first, I think it's very simple to divide a company, the world and a company into two worlds, actually. One, managing the existing and the other one, inventing the future. And, you know, companies tend to focus entirely on managing the existing. You can innovate, but it's maybe more efficiency innovation, right? Improving your products, improving your business model. And that's fine. That's okay. That's efficiency innovation, but it's usually not enough to stay alive for 5, 10, 50, 100 years. So you need to go beyond efficiency innovation. Um, that is sustaining innovation. If you make cars, your new car model is not going to give you growth for the next decade. It's just going to replace the older cars that you're not selling anymore. So that's good. But you probably also want to think of transformative innovation because maybe your industry is transforming, changing, dying, right? So if you do efficiency innovation, that's it. You're probably going to die more efficiently with your dying business model. So you want to start investing in the future while you're successful. It's not that one of these three types of innovation is right and the others are wrong. No, it's all of these. Efficiency innovation, sustaining innovation, and transformative innovation. I take that. I bluntly steal that approach of these three types of innovation from Clay Christensen and others. But I think it's important because people say, oh, everybody needs to be an innovator or innovation is going to save us. Well, it depends what you, what you do. Again, if you just do efficiency innovation, it's not wrong, but you might just more efficiently die, right? So you need a portfolio, actually, and probably two portfolios. That's the way we frame it. A portfolio of, of improvements and in innovations with, with what you have, your existing product, services, business models, and a portfolio to in the, invent the future. And now, depending on how you know, at risk your business, your industry is, the more you need to invest in the future. If you have a really powerful business model, you know, take Apple and Amazon, they have built business models that are practically, you know, it's impossible to disrupt them, at least in the next 10 years. It's going to take 10, 20 years. Even if they stop innovating right now, 
it's going to take a long time for anybody to disrupt them because they're so they built so powerful business models. So how much you innovate, where you innovate is very context specific. But what you want to know is there's a world of improving the existing and there's a world of inventing the future. Those are different worlds and you need to approach them differently. Do you do you tend to think about how the intersection of those is where I think they're the really interesting and, and vexing part of this is. So how how do you think about those two things? Because if you're, you know, to borrow a Clayton Christensen term, if you're disrupting yourself, how do you do you maintain those? You talked about two portfolios. Are they an arm's length relationship? Are you trying to do both in the same pool of resources? Uh, how do you how do you look at that? It's usually difficult. That that ha- then has to do with size as well, right? Um if you're a startup and you're just trying to figure out what's your first, your right business model, you don't do anything else, then search you know, for the, the value propositions in business model just to get started. If you're a medium-sized company, well, you, you know, you're going to start trying to improve to scale. So you're looking at innovations that will help you grow and scale. But you also have to start to build that other engine. And usually it's not the same people. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's, it's very schizophrenic. Now, the smaller you are, the more likely it's the same people. The, the challenge is that you need to have different people doing this. So the way I like to frame it is, you know, in, in, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, there are a lot of things that are maybe not so good at the moment, but there's, there's something that's really powerful. And my friend Steve Blank likes to say that there's one thing we call failed entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Mm. experienced right? because you get better at it <laughs> so this myth of the you know the young innovator and entrepreneur on the cover of the magazine the reality is actually if you look at the research the most successful innovators are and entrepreneurs are over 40 so it's good for the older ones you know who are listening here <laughs> and for myself but you know, besides the joke, yeah, <laughs> besides the joke it's, it has to do with experience. So there, it's very rare that first-time innovators or entrepreneurs are successful. I mean, you have those people and they make it on the cover of the magazine, but that's one out of a million. So the reality is most innovators and entrepreneurs, they're part of a team first. They watch how others fail. They learn a ton from other people's failures, from other company failures until they get it right. So you need to have that type of person in your company who's done it before. What you also need, and that's maybe going from zero to whatever, 1 million, 5 million, 10 million in revenues, then you also need those people who are good to go from 10 million to more. That's scaling. That's a completely different ballgame. It's a different skill set. It's rarely the same people. Is there a person who can do the full range? Yeah, that can exist. Again, one in a million. So, so we need to have different skill sets for the different jobs in a company. And, and what's really important is, you know, the bigger you get, the more managers you will have. And that's not a value judgment. <laughs> Managing the existing is different from inventing the future. So what you actually need in a company is managers who manage the existing and are world-class at that and innovators, entrepreneurs who invent the future and they need to live in harmony because today this is my biggest you know enemy is is innovators like to call themselves pirates and rebels like that is pure stupidity you you know historically we kill pirates and rebels okay so i don't really like that <laughs> it's oh, I'm a pirate. okay well everybody's gonna hunt you down and gonna try to kill you so my colleague <laughs> My colleague Tendariki wrote a book, Pirates in the Navy, because he said, well, you actually want to maybe act like a pirate, but you want to be protected by the Navy. So, 
So I, I just think it's important that we have what this partnership. <laughs> so, and, and, and I, I'm curious, like, how do you know the, um, I just keep pushing into this because I think this is a fascinating, this dual track um, innovation within a single organization is fascinating as a concept, but how, I mean, you talked about size as a, as a delimiter, but is there something else about the maturity of your existing uh, innovation, your existing market position or product that, or organization that tells you you're ready to splash out? Because we're talking about a, a rather large, a sizable additional investment track where you're siphoning off uh, resources from your, from your somewhat yeah. successful, hopefully, business, um, and then funding this, uh, this alternative track, inventing the future, as you called it, how, what, what are some of the tells that, that, um, that leaders uh, see that say they're ready for track two? So I, I think you're, you need to be ready for track two the moment you have a business model that's working. It's not a question of size, actually. It's a question of you know, how likely is your business model you know, to be disrupted. So small companies can be disrupted the moment they found a business model. Somebody else might come up with the same technology. A bigger player might come in. So it's not a question of size. It's all the time. So innovation is not a stunt. It's a continuous activity. And that's, that's the challenge. Again, so, so I think you just need to be aware. How likely are you to get disrupted? The likelier you are to get disrupted, well, the more you need to invest in this track too. And you know, talking about cost of innovation, I think there's this myth that innovation is expensive. And I know exactly where it comes from. We say innovation, people think technology. Technology is hard, you know, requires people, et cetera. That's not the same thing. Innovation is creating value for customers and your business. Invention, that has to do with technology. And it's a small subset, right? So you can use technology to innovate, but you don't have to. Let me give you a wonderful example. This is my, one of my favorite examples. There's a company that disrupted an entire multi-billion dollar industry with inferior technology. Know what I'm talking about? Nintendo Wii. When Nintendo launched the Nintendo Wii, the platform was off-the-shelf technology, terrible graphics, terrible speed, but yeah. they had a different business model. <laughs> if you ever played with a Nintendo Wii, like, it's fun, but the graphics are a disaster, right? But they were targeting casual gamers who didn't care about graphics, while the whole industry was focusing on hardcore gamers who want the best hardware. So that's a larger market, casual gamers, you know, my grandmother, <laughs> my, uh, my parents, uh, my mother-in-law, so all of, you know, everybody, right? My kids. Kids maybe go more in the hardcore gamer field, who knows? So, you know, that is one aspect. And the other aspect is that they, they, because it was so much cheaper to build these things, they could earn money from selling the hardware while everybody else was selling hardware at a loss. So bigger market, think of it, right? Inferior technology, bigger market, more profits. Nobody thinks of innovation that way. So I think we're, we're, we're a little bit, you know, there's these, there are these myths in innovation that are just simply wrong. So that's the technology part. The other part is innovation does get expensive when you scale, but when you start, it doesn't. Let me give you an example that shows you that if you have too much money, you're likely to fail. You increase the failure, the chances of failure with the amount of money you get. What's a beautiful example now? Quibi. <laughs> they got, you know, $1.7 billion. <laughs> What happens when you have $1.7 billion? You build something stupid that doesn't work, that nobody wants. That's exactly what happens. So, you know, you have 
the people behind it were not stupid. These are, you know, know, experienced people, experienced CEO, Meg Whitman, an experienced Hollywood person with Jeffrey Katzenberg, but they got too much money. So they built something nobody wants. Entrepreneurship is not about the idea and executing it. Entrepreneurship and innovation is about adapting your idea until it works. And the until is the most important word here. You know, it's not about the idea. People overestimate the idea. So you need to spend a little bit of money to adapt the idea. The more you learn, the more you start to invest. It's metered funding, right? So you actually gets only gets expensive when you have enough evidence that now's the time to scale. And uh, it's interesting that companies that follow that approach, you know, lean startup approach, started by uh, by Steve Blank with customer development and then made popular uh, by Eric Ries, that is what we're increasingly seeing. Too much money increases the risk of building something nobody wants. And I don't just mean building in terms of products, building companies. We work. That business model never worked, at least not at that valuation. Why did it happen? Too much money. So people always think you need money to succeed. Money is actually the enemy of good innovation at the beginning. When you scale, you need it. That's a different story. You need the market discipline that that scarcity of resources brings, right? And, and, you know, it's also, so there's this myth that you can pivot yourself to success. Actually, great entrepreneurs also know when to quit. There are ideas that need to get killed. That's why there is a venture capital industry and they manage portfolios. No venture capitalist believes they can be, there are a lot of great people from others. There are also some that are a little bit arrogant, but even they do not believe they can pick the winners because they know you can't predict the future. So they invest in a portfolio of businesses and you'll have one or two out of the portfolio that will win and they will have eight that are losers in quotes, right? Because remember in Silicon Valley and Bay Area and the startup world in general, People who've, who've failed once, they've learned a lot. Next time, they're not going to make the same mistakes. So great investors actually invest often in people who failed and technically you know, wasted venture capital money because they know those people are not going to make the same mistakes. Now, there's also sometimes stupidity involved, but most entrepreneurs, they fail because they were too early, because you know whatever reason... So that's, you know, this approach that we know we can't pick the winner in innovation. So we need to constantly adapt based on the evidence that we get in the field. That's the key thing. Because there's this often this, oh, I just need to find the right idea. Ideas don't matter. Ideas are free. They're everywhere. You need to test your ideas and adapt them until they work. I'm pretty curious because I saw you talk about this idea in one of your early talks about it about three years ago, what, what set you on this path? What were you seeing or hearing in the marketplace that told you that this was a big, that this was a big problem and that really needed some, a framework and a way of solving it? What was the, what was that thing, those markers or who were the companies that you were really thinking about when you set out to solve this problem? So the, at the very beginning, when Yves Pinier, my co-author and myself, started working on business models, he was my PhD supervisor. I was his PhD student. And you know, for the funny story, I actually you know, did a job uh, interview with him after miserably failing with a job interview with McKinsey. So they didn't want me. So I was lucky enough. So look at the example of failure. 
I failed miserably in my job interview with McKinsey, which put me off on the path you know, that gave me the future I have now. So I was pretty lucky to fail. But with, with Eve, actually, his idea at the beginning was that you know, he's a business school professor, worked a lot with uh, students from the technology school just beside us, the uh, Ecole Polytechnique de Lausanne. He, you know, saw them writing business plans, but not really being able to articulate the business model. So what he was looking for is a PhD student who could help figure out systematically what is a business model and could we kind of make software that would allow us to sketch out business models. So now, 20 years later, that's what we're doing with Strategizer. But that was the start. How can we rapidly sketch out business models? Then, you know, funny enough, when we launched the book Business Model Generation, I went to the Bay Area and I got to meet uh, Steve Blank, you know, who, was, who, who read my PhD at the time. And he was trying to convince his teaching assistant, Anmira Kyo at the time, to, uh, to read the book, uh, to read the PhD. And, see, and she said, no, 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 you got to read this book, Business Model Generation. Actually, they were talking about the same thing. The, <laughs> technical, the, the scientific thing on the one hand, and she was talking about the, the business book on the other hand. So then I got to meet Steve and we merged the ideas, right? Because he really pushed this idea that you can't figure out the business model from day one. You actually need to test, right? So with customer development, he, he created this movement around systematically testing your business idea. And so we put those two things together and, and Steve Mike's now a great friend. We always share ideas, you know, new stuff comes out. Of it. That was the beginning. But since we, you know, I've, I started working with established companies and I didn't see them innovate on a large scale, we realized, well, it's not enough to have one tool and one process. There are probably more tools that we need to work on. So we wrote another book, like at the, now after the fourth book, uh, The Invincible Company, because we see that companies are not doing it yet. Because when you write a book, the first thing you should always ask, does the world need another business book? And the answer should be no. And then you arrogantly find an argument, why does the world need another business book? There are millions, literally, there's over a million business books out there in English. But we thought, well, people wrote about innovation, this ambidextrous, and how do you do this in large companies? But it remained relatively abstract or theoretical. Great ideas, mm -hmm. so great concepts. But we said we can, we can do better to bring it into companies, to help leadership teams actually scale this, not just do it, but scale it. Because we saw teams doing the right work, but we didn't see leaders creating the conditions for the teams to succeed. So we wrote this new book, a fourth one, to help leaders and teams better you know, work in collaboration and harmony. So that was kind of the motivation. And, you know, every time we see something doesn't work, we don't blame the people. We say, what are we not doing right yet? What can we give them to help them? So we always look at the mistake is, is what are we not doing right to help them? And I think that's what business thinkers should do more. They should look at what they're offering to the market as a product, right? And you know, what's not working in the product? No, don't blame the people who don't want to buy your product. <laughs> They're not getting it. They don't know how to use it. Well, it's too complicated, right? So, so I think business thinkers need to do the same thing that we do in product design. And 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 Jess wrote the actually is co-author of the book, the product mindset um, that our CEO and and Jess put out and. And it maps very well to a lot of the things that you're talking about. But even better is the feedback that we'll often get on the product mindset when people hear it is, gosh, my boss needs to hear this or my or my CEO needs to hear this, right? That, that would be really valuable. That would create the space for me to be 
to be nimble enough to do product discovery rather than idea execution, yeah. um, which which sounds like what, what you're describing, yeah. which is doing that at scale is scary for leaders. It means we don't have yeah. a plan. We have, a, yeah, we have and, an approach. <laughs> and I like that idea of the product mindset, even for organizational design, right? So the company you're managing is a product for your staff, for your team, and that ultimately creates value for customers, right? So I believe the best organizations in the world they create value for customers because otherwise you're dead. They create value for your company, otherwise you're dead because you're going to go bankrupt. But they also create value for the team because otherwise people are going to leave. You're also dead. And then the fourth one, I'd say, is you know they create value for society. So if you take Patagonia, if you take Unilever, they don't yeah. stop at creating value for customers, the company, and the team. They say, no, we have a you know obligation. And it's not, you know, it's not just, oh, because we're touchy-feely, because they understand that companies that create value for society and for the planet you know, can actually increase their profits. It's not at the expense of profits, it's in harmony. And that's the key thing. We need to find new business models that satisfy all four of these areas to create value. Because if we continue just to innovate, to create more, to make more money, you know, it's not going to last for very long. Uh, at least our kids or our grandkids are not going to have a fun place to live anymore. So I do believe it's getting urgent to actually really ask, how can we use um, companies as a force for good? And of course, you know, Mark Benioff is, is pushing that, uh, talking about that a lot. Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, is talking about that a lot. So I think, you know, we need to think beyond, oh, we're creating great products because we're cool people. No, at the end of the day, we need to create great products and great companies for the benefit of society and the world. And because I do think, you know, we can do that as a force for good because we can create better workplaces. You have better workplaces. People are happier. They're going to be happier at home. We're creating a better society. So it's really not, not, it's not rocket science and it's not about the touchy feely. It's really about just simple basics of how do you make things work for everybody. So I think it's interesting you say that because I've always felt like one thing I left out of the book was this last piece and that we didn't, you're so, you're so thinking about the customer and the business, the customer, the business. And then you, then you wake up and realize, oh my gosh, we're making something that is increasing teen depression or that we, we were thinking about what we could do. We weren't necessarily thinking about privacy. And we weren't thinking about the effects that we have on people. And all of a sudden now there's kind of this reckoning of when you saw what you create, because there's like that piece of your mindset that isn't necessarily it's thinking about your broader impact and what do you want that to be? So it's not part of your mindset. It's not part of that goal that you're trying to achieve. And I think as a whole industry, if we can call it like the whole technology industry has to now reckon with what have we done? And how do we now start to rethink and retrain and reevaluate and direct um, what we're doing for society yeah. at large? I think there's a huge reckoning to be held there. Yeah. And I think that the important part there is, you know, it's too easy to blame. So I watched this video from you know, Barack Obama was talking at a, at, a, at a school and he was saying, you know, Oh, it's super easy to just blame others and, and call them out and then lean back and think, oh, I'm doing good. You know, I just, I just said th those companies are terrible or, you know, this or that, you know, 
at the end of the day, you need to actually do something, right? Calling out people is not activism. It's not going to help create a better world. It's actually going to make it worse. And that's where we are today. Everybody's fighting and nobody's doing shit. So what we really need to actually do is vote with our feet. If we believe, you know, whatever Facebook um, is, is not, you know, is, is not doing good, if we believe Apple is not doing good, if we believe our companies are not going, doing good, we need to vote with our feet, right? So that's the only way. So there's a personal responsibility part there that as individuals, we need to own, you know, what we're creating in the world. Too many people take the easy path. It's enough to blame and they feel good about themselves. That's not enough. The world is not going to change because you blamed others and you feel good about yourself. It's all about action. So I think there, you know, as I'm an entrepreneur, I have a, a team, employees, I can create a better workplace, which will have an impact on the world. So I need to start there. And I, I, I need to start on that small thing. And then I can educate other entrepreneurs. I can educate CEOs. So it's really about the actions we take that will make a real difference. And that is all about, you know, responsibility and accountability. And when you're a parent, <laughs> try to help your kids actually, you know, act like that. So, so there's a lot more influence that we have as individuals than we actually believe. We blame others. We blame institutions, big corporations. That's not enough. Don't feel good about yourself because you called out an institution. That's not going to work. It's not going to change the world. One one of the things that that strikes me as as you're talking is that you know because a lot of times I'll explain to engineers why do we care about money? We care about money because we well yes of course we need salaries everyone starts there but the next thing is is like why do we care that our product sells? Because we're trying to create a, a product that other people find valuable. If you're the right kind of engineer that the kind that we want to work with because we build products. Um, then that's the thing you care about. You want to build a product that people use and find delight in and feels that solves a, a problem for them, right? And so the money is a proxy for value, but it's a proxy. And if you lose sight of that, it becomes about the money and, instead of realizing that it's about value, to your point. And I think that, that once you return to the value conversation, now you can talk about this more expansive idea of like, what is value? What is valuable to us? And when I talk about us, I'm talking about an expansive version of us. Uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty neat, neat concept. And I think that's important when we talk innovation, we need to ask why, right? Like innovating to innovate. Yes, of course, we get passionate about technology. We have fun, but we have to get back to the why every now and then, because otherwise we get carried away with, as you said, Jess, with things that after all of a sudden we realize, oh, we created a monster, right? a Frankenstein. So you got to go back to the why and ask yourself, you know, so take my example. I help large companies. Uh, leadership teams innovate and create more growth. Okay, is that exciting to, to help a, a global corporation, a multinational, create more money, uh, earn more money and grow? Well, it depends how you look at it. Because if I can help companies reinvent themselves, I can create more job stability. If I can help them create better workplaces, I can actually have a, a really big impact on on uh, on uh, how people feel. If I can help a leadership team that manages 400,000 people create a better workplace, wow, that's an impact, right? So we always kind of glorify the startups and I love the startup world, but we, we kind of just say big companies are bad. No, they can be a force for good because there's so much leverage. So I like to help companies innovate so they can actually stay alive. Because if a large company fires 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people, wow, that is a lot of suffering. Who pays the bill? 
Well, guess what? <laughs> the government and ultimately, you know, our taxes. So helping companies innovate is not just to help them make more money, is actually to help them create a better workplace, a better jobs, job stability, what we're kind of losing. So, you know, it's always easy. Sometimes people say, yeah, but it's natural that large companies die and startups overtake them. Well, that's easy when you're not the person who's being fired, right? So it's too easy. To, some of these arguments, yeah. Okay, that's that's a, that's a, an entitled argument. So I think we need to look at the real costs of those things. And then innovation gets really exciting again, because then it's not just about money. And again, you know, I believe in certain forms of capitalism, So because money is a way to measure how much value you create. And guess what? If a company doesn't make money, it's going to die and you're going to have job losses. So money's not a bad thing, but it shouldn't be the goal. Absolutely not. So I completely agree with what you said, Scott. I, uh, I'm working with a company right now, and I think they are, um, what's really unique and special about the work they do is they, they have kind of come through, they have their initial business model. They've done really well. Um, they have, they had a unique model in their space and, and now, you know, they're trying to get to the next one. And as you look at, you go into this company, you're like, they have big dreams and ideals and they're trying to make this pivot and they're struggling their way through it because they don't know how to do what you're talking about, which is, okay, we have this one, but we know there's this other thing. And we're really, you know, to the point where the CEO grabbed three coders and went into a room for a couple months to do it, which is like, that doesn't feel like the right set of things. And so this particular organization, I think, you know, if I can figure out how to help them, that's a 200, they're 200 person company, mm. um, that we could create a lot more opportunity for these like middle managers to do something really special, but how do I get this? How do I help this organization figure out how to, yes, this is your current business model. And this is how you start to figure out that, you know, that next product is there in order to get the next evolution of your company. So how do they structure the organization? Cause I think the only way they made progress was to have the CEO grab a bunch of people, break all the rules, do everything completely differently and go over there. And now they're trying to reintegrate and they're stuck. And then that's the problem, right? So as long as we break the rules to try to innovate, we're we're in a bad place, right? So we know how it works now. So the rules should actually be that we create the right system to systematically innovate because we now know. I mean, most, most of it is known, not all of it. And we can't guarantee, you know, the size of innovations. But you know what? We can actually decrease the likelihood of, of, of blowing up, wasting money by a lot. So today, I like to say, give me a million, I'll give you 10 million back because we know how to manage a portfolio to do that if the mindset is right. So you need to actually put in place a system with the right rules, the right culture, the right skills. And you know what? The magic will happen. Trust the process. The problem is there's still this heroic approach. The pirates, if I'm just a pirate and a rebel and I break the rules... We're going to get there. We're going to pivot ourselves to success. We know this lean startup thing. Well, you know what worked five years ago or 10 years ago doesn't work anymore. We learned a lot more. So today, this is closer to a profession than it used to be. And the way I like to frame it is, you know, the medical profession. I love how how doctors are trained or, or surgeons. Imagine if you're a surgeon you know, you have to go through heart surgery. You're in the, in the operating theater. Your surgeon shows up with a Swiss army knife. Don't get me wrong. I love Swiss army knives, but maybe not. <laughs> shows up with a Swiss army knife. And then he or she says, 
oh, wow, I, I learned this thing at a workshop I did over the weekend for two days. I'm going to try it out. You're going to run, right? <laughs> if you're not just already tied to it. So I think in innovation, we still kind of act as if this was not a profession we didn't know how to do it. So, you know, the 20% rule. Oh, I'll give you 20%, you know, figure it out. Guess what? If you do that with marketing or finance, you're going you're gonna to have, you know, a lot of problems. So in innovation, we know enough now to really make it a serious function. And it's not the young university grad who's going to be the best innovator. It's the people who've done it five, 10 times who will be the best innovators. Not because they can pick the idea, but because they know how the process works. They know how the tools work. So I think that's where we need to stop seeing this as breaking the rules. Some companies, they, they give team members prizes to break the rules. Like, that's insanity. Why don't you change the rules rather than giving people a prize to break the rules? Like, really? So, <laughs> there's something still wrong in innovation in many companies, but the good news is it's changing, right? So a lot more companies, you know, uh, thanks to all the work we are all doing, you know, trying to figure this out, the business thinkers, authors, consultants, and advisors, and internal people, it's changing dramatically, and we're seeing companies getting better at this. I'm impatient, so for me, it's too slow, but I'm I'm already happy that companies are going into the right direction. Yeah, you reminded me. There's a company, and I'm going to screw this up because I don't remember the name of the company. They operate out of Cambridge. And their entire mo- Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, and their entire model is is basically these stage gates for experimentation, right? And and so you're given a certain allocation of of resources, and you iterate, on, and if it's able to meet the the metrics of getting out of that stage, then you get another. Then there's additional uh, resources made available to that idea. I mean, it's almost as it's it's inculcated to your point into the culture. The entire machinery is not not to pick winners, but to build an experimentation and, and validation uh, engine. And really the, quite impressive. Um, and, and as you're talking, I was, I was thinking about that. And the, the problem, you know, to a certain extent is that we use the execution mindset for innovation. So we think it's about planning and going for it, marching forward. You reach right. that stage, reach the next stage. Well, guess what? In innovation, you might reach a stage where the customers said they love it, but they say, well, I'm going to pay five bucks for that and you need 20 to make it work financially. Guess what? You just failed. So you have to go back maybe three stages. So where the stage gate project uh, process really doesn't work is it comes from execution. There are many steps back and that's okay in innovation. In innovation, you actually don't want people to work, to walk forward blindly. I ask a question, which sounds stupid, right? But I always ask it at, at the events I do, you know, 300 people, 3,000 people. I ask them, how many people in the room are today working on a product or service that nobody wants? Mm-hmm. And there are always hands that go up. The honest people put their hands up. Now, are these people stupid? Why don't they stop? Well, they're not stupid. The processes in the companies are broken. So they get forced to execute something where they already know this is not going to work. Right? So it sounds completely yeah. ridiculous. But this is what's wow. happening in the world. Projects get funding based on a plan when the team already knows. We talk to customers. They really don't care about this thing. <laughs> but, you know, it's the pet project of somebody in the company with a nice business card. So I don't want to, you know, kind of sound very negative about this, but... The good news, again, is that this is changing. The leaders are getting smarter about innovation. And I don't want to blame leaders. 
I have a one CEO friend. I asked him, well, on stage and doing an interview, I asked him why, you know, you understand innovation. Why did you not do more of that at your multi-billion dollar company? He said, Alex was very clear for mergers and acquisitions. I had a checklist. I just had to call the lawyers and, you know, it was executed and the stock market understands it. I didn't even need to get it right every time because they just know how this works. Some, sometimes you win, sometimes you fail. But innovation, my, I'm not going to touch that thing. That's a black box. Right? So leaders today, they, they will not go into that direction because it still is a black box. And now folks like us, we're trying to, to educate. And I think it's changing. So that's the great news. That uh, So great also that, you know, with the podcast. Alex, let me, let me push in on that a little bit. Because if you're not funding the plan, which because that, that's, that's the way they teach it, right? You have a business plan and then you fund the execution of said plan, right? That's, that's how this works. If it's not that, if that's wrong, then what are they funding? Are they funding? What are they funding? How would you describe the thing that they are, they're, they're funding? So this is what I would usually draw. Now let me try to draw that visual with words. <laughs> not that easy, right? You fund the portfolio. So basically, you know, I'll give you an example, like a real world example, makes it concrete. Bosch is a, is a German technology company, 400,000 people. They, in over the last three years, under uh, Uwe Kirchner, they invested in 200 teams over three years, but they give them 120,000 euro, maybe $140,000, and they give them three months, okay? So you invest in that over three years, but here's what happens. After three months, the teams need to show the evidence that they generated. Talk to customers, they generate evidence. Guess how many projects are killed or don't get follow-up funding? 70%. Okay, So 70% of all projects don't get follow-up funding. And the teams don't see this as a failure. They understand we didn't bring the evidence to the table. It's okay. Nobody gets fired because it's okay. 30% of the teams get 300,000 euro, so maybe, I don't know, $360,000, something like that. And they get maybe six months, maybe a little bit more. So the time frame is a little bit more flexible there. Again, after that phase, they have to come back with evidence. Now maybe it's, you know, willingness to pay evidence, maybe feasibility evidence. Guess how many projects get killed after this stage? 75%, okay? So from the 200 projects, only 15 make it to execution. And it's seen as a success because they know that you're funding the portfolio and you're looking at the return on portfolio. You're not looking at the return on project. Now, here's when we talk efficiency innovation. It's a little bit different. When I'm making an app for the sales force, I better get it right. So that is efficiency innovations. There's a lot less uncertainty. So there you'll still test, but the likelihood that one project is going to get it right is very high. But when you're talking new customer segments, new uh, channels, new supply chain, the likelihood one team is going to get it right, the one team you funded, is practically zero. Statistics from early venture capital, and I think, Jess, that's the, the presentation you saw. It's the first time I, mm -hmm. I try to figure out the numbers. Yep. One out of 250 projects is an outlier and a mega success. One out of 250. So statistically, as an established company, if you want a really big success, hundreds of millions of dollars, you'd have to invest in 250 projects, small amounts of money to create one winner, okay? So you can't pick the winner. And now look at the companies that are really good at innovation. Let's take one, Amazon, the usual suspect. 
Why are they good at innovation? Because the CEO says we're the best place in the world to fail. How does that resonate with what I just said? 250 projects that fail to create one big winner. That's exactly what Amazon designed into its culture. Another company that's not a usual suspect is Ping An. It's my favorite example in our book. Ping An, 10 years ago, was a boring finance, a banking and insurance conglomerate in China. Okay? The founder, Peter Ma, said, we're going to get killed by technology companies. We better change. We're going to become a technology player investing in arenas. He created a division under a co-CEO, Jessica Tan, who would follow exactly the approach that I explained with, with Bosch. They would give money to the team and say, you're not going to get it right. You're going to fail. But go ahead and try and adapt until you get it right. Today, Ping An has various successes. They run the biggest health platform on the planet called Ping An Good Doctor. Okay, think. It's an insurance and banking company that created the biggest health platform on the planet. Why? Because they decided strategically they need to invest in certain arenas and that they would need to adapt until they find the right idea. So it's not about investing in a business plan. It's about strategically investing in innovation in a portfolio, swallowing all of the failures because you know exactly how that is going to create a winner. So we're not talking big failures. We're talking a lot of small failures, but even, you know, bigger over time, you increase the capital. So Jebezos likes to say, you know, with the, with the growing size of Amazon, we actually need to increase the size of our failures. How many CEOs do you hear say that? We need to increase the size of our failures. Wow. Okay. But it's not, it's insane. It's systematic. That right. is a process. Portfolio theory, we know that for a long time. So we just need to start doing it. It's it's just a question of choice. It's not it's not that hard. It's a question of really putting in the energy, the money, and the strategic intent. And any company can do it. You, you know the 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 obsession is uh, sometimes I like to say Silicon Valley is a little bit obsessed with failure only because I don't think it's failure that we want. More failure is not a good, but learning is. And the insight that you gain from from failure, if you harvest it, I mean, if we if we just make it about failure, we'll get a lot of failure. What we really want is learning, um, okay. because it's that learning that's uh, that's so high value. So uh, no, I will push back on that, and I'll yeah. tell you why. So we don't want learning either. What we want is to build a business, and mm-hmm. the reason I actually emphasize failure, because of course you know we don't want failure, but we don't want learning either. What we really want is to build a business. But here's mm-hmm. the thing. If you don't embrace failure, if you don't make it a legitimate thing that will happen, not it can happen, it will happen, because if you don't fail, there's no chance you're going to innovate, okay? There is no company on the planet that can innovate without failure. So Mm -hmm. you need to embrace it. You need to make it okay. And, you know, take Jeff Bezos again. He says, of course, nobody likes failure. We don't want that. It's never the goal, but it's an inevitable side product. So the reason I'm pushing back is because when people try to hide failure, everybody tells me, Alex, don't talk about failures, talk about learning. But then we're hiding failure. And as long as failure is a stigma, nobody will take the risk to innovate. So as long as you hide that, that failure is part of innovation, people will not. So most Mm -hmm. people who want to make career in a company, they know they can't fail. So as long as failure is a stigma, you won't get innovation. When you stop firing people because they experimented and failed, 
that's when the innovators will stay. So I do think, and that's why I'm pushing back a bit, of course, nobody wants failure, I agree. I'm pushing back because we need to embrace failure in a systematic way to minimize the cost and time of failure in order to maximize the success we'll get from it. So that's the way I would frame it, because if we don't embrace it in companies, we won't get innovation. So we need to make it an okay thing, not the goal, of course, but an okay thing that is not stigmatized. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, we actually, as we get close to time here, and I keep wanting to go, but I feel like we, I know you, we do need to, we do ask, we like to ask all our guests two questions. And so the first one is, what is the one thing you always look for that tells you if a, a team or an organization is a healthy one? I'd say a team alignment, right? Um, are they really, really, really aligned, you know, the same vision, but also aligned in their culture? Um, I don't think there's a right or a wrong culture, but the team needs to actually just have the, the the culture that works for all of them. And if I may add a second one, it's psychological safety. So, and that has to do again with alignment. Mm-hmm. If you feel like people, you know, are not collaborating the right way, they can't speak up. That's something I like. I know others that like when people kind of, you know, have a different culture. I like teams that are aligned and have psychological safety because I think that's the best of all worlds where people will also feel safe. I'm not saying that's the only way to succeed. Don't get me wrong, but that's the the type of organization or team I'm looking for. Embracing failure, right? Uh, if we have the safety to be able to say say things that are radical or uh, that would that would foster that environment of uh, of innovation, yeah, it makes sense. Sorry, Jess. I don't think you could have alignment without psychological safety, like true alignment, because otherwise people will be afraid to ask questions. They, I spent the last two days with a new client and just me poking that stuff made it so much easier. Like I'm like, I'm going to ask lots of dumb questions, but then all of a sudden I was able to get their team to talk about stuff that I made it easy for people to talk about, oh, wait, you think it's this? I think it's that. I don't think if you're safe, you can actually get aligned because then you're either too scared or too embarrassed to call things out and say, oh, did you mean it like this? I thought we meant it like this. Or actually, no, we don't agree. And we, but I don't feel like I can say that to you because you're more important than me. Very possible. Very possible. Um, the other question is, what piece of technology, analog software or hardware that is not your phone, no cheating, can you not live without? I'd say drawing. So like language is a technology. For me, drawing is a, is a communication tool. <laughs> so with my co-author, um, Yves Pinier, with my team members like Alan Smith, or so my co-founder, we draw while we talk. So that's why podcasts are very hard for me because I can't <laughs> visualize <laughs> But the drawing, I could not, you know, what I mean with drawing is not making beautiful landscapes. Nobody, those look terrible, but actually trying to visualize my ideas with a, with a pen or an iPad or paper. So it's the drawing that I could not live without because I couldn't, I couldn't express myself. Yeah. And I haven't seen your new book, The Invincible Company yet, but having read Business Model Generation, these are very... This is where you want the, I think you, I want the paperback, you know, the, the print version because it's so visual and you want to be able to kind of embrace it in that way. Um, and I, I think having used the business model canvas many, many times with clients, 
it is the fastest way I know to get into an organization because in one hour I walk, I facilitate the conversation. And then all of a sudden I'm like, at the end of the hour, I'm like, okay, I got it. I know what we're doing now. And, and that's, I, and I that's like what it. visual thinking is. Yeah, absolutely. So you put the finger on what, you know, why I think visual is so important because it's another language. Talking is one language, but you can actually, you can accelerate that, leverage the language with, with the visual skills. Dan Rome likes to call, you're just talking, blah, 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 right? So we need to move both. If we just draw, it's not going to work. And by the way, the Invincible Company is 10 times better from the content and the design perspective than business model generation. Okay. So when does it come out? It's out. It's been out now for a couple of weeks. Probably the worst period ever, you know, the last 150 years to launch a business book. But since we write books that should be timely, because I don't think uh, innovation is going to go away in the next uh, five to 10 years, you know, you got to take what you you get. So um, interesting period to launch a business book. (laughs) or maybe exactly the right time well actually i'd say it's exactly the right time because i think everybody is we a lot of our clients and i've done roundtables in industry and sorry in in media and information services in retail and healthcare everyone's now having to reckon with a whole new set of things you know where, where do we continue to make continuous improvements where what are the new bets that we have to make and they're they're different than they were a couple months ago from a content perspective, you're right. We could have called it the resilient company. But the mm-hmm. problem is when, you know, Amazon doesn't send books out anymore because it's not seen as an, you know, essential good, which I think is actually essential good for companies that have helped them survive. But the, the books are just not shipped out anymore. So, so it was more that, you know, it's not from a content perspective. The world, you know, stopped in some areas. So there was no, some people were waiting for two months. They were writing me messages on Twitter and saying, Alex, where's this book? I can't wait. It's like, I'm not <laughs> selling drugs here. I'm just selling business books. So, but people were excited and it was just hard to get these books into people's hands. May our books be as, uh, as attractive as drugs. That would be awesome. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that, right? So now people are going to assume stuff about me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been a, a pleasure. And there's, a, a, I mean, there's so much that, that you're talking about that resonates so deeply with us uh, and how we advise uh, business leaders uh, to go to market, to experiment, um, to really to find what works. So, uh, so thank you so much. You, you shared some great insights with us today. Thanks for having me. Wonderful conversation. Keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit threepillarglobal.com.